Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of Relationship Radio. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing itstartswithattraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to itstartswithattraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. Good evening and welcome to Marriage Radio. Sometimes we call it the Dr. Joe Show. I work with a great number of people who have been involved or are involved in an extramarital affair. All kinds of questions come, not just from the spouse who would say, why did my husband do that? Or why did my wife do that? But I've often asked those kinds of questions by the very person who is in the affair or who has had the affair. People who will ask questions like this. Why do I do this? As a matter of fact, the questions get even more complicated when it's been more than one extramarital affair. They may be back to back. In other words, this one lasts for a while and then the person goes to that one and that one lasts for a while and perhaps even goes to another one. Sometimes they're further apart or they last for a while here and then and things seem to get better. They work out the marriage, things go well, maybe for a year, two years, three years, even five years or more. And then the next thing you know, they're involved in an affair again. And these people, again, not only are their spouses asking me, why is this happening? Can I ever trust my husband again? Can I ever trust my wife? Can he or she get past this? Can I get past this? But again, I get the questions from the very people involved in those situations saying, I don't know how to stop. I don't even know why I'm doing what I'm doing. Tonight, I've asked that rather than answering questions on the program like I normally do, that I'd like to hear from people who have had affairs or who are in affairs, whether it's one affair or more, but I really would like to people, talk to people tonight that have had more than one affair. If you decide to call with that, let me tell you how I'm going to do it. I'll treat you, first of all, with respect. I will not embarrass you. I will not chastise you. I won't even ask for your real name. I'll ask you to give me a name to call you, but you can make up a name if you wish. We don't want to reveal your identity to the world. And the questions I'll ask you will be designed to help me understand but at the same time, hopefully, designed to help you understand why. You see, we can talk about all kinds of things. I mean, I've heard everything you can possibly imagine. Worked with a couple once where she had had multiple affairs. And in conversation with her, I asked the question, when was your first sexual experience? It was when she was three and her brother was six. And her brother started doing things to her at that point by the time she was five. And of course, her brother three years older. By the time she was five, he was doing absolute full penetration intercourse with her. I asked her why she didn't tell someone. She said, I did. I told my mother. I said, what did she say? She said, oh, get over it. That happens in every family. When she told me that, I looked at her and said, what does that tell you about your mother? She thought for a few seconds, and all of a sudden, her eyes lit up. She just had a revelation. She said, that tells me that it happened to her. Yes, it did. And the fact that a six-year-old boy in your age group, you know, that was many years ago pre-internet, because now we wonder if a six-year-old is doing something sexual, if maybe he or she are emulating what we have seen, or what they have seen, I should say, on the Internet. But this was, she's old enough that that, that would have happened before the Internet was even going. And that meant that for that six-year-old, when he started doing that to do what he had done, something had been done to him. Or at least he had witnessed it, but in all likelihood it had been done to him. And the result of that was that she was extremely promiscuous, to the point that after she married, she continued to have sex with one man after another, after another, after another. Her husband knew the situation and was trying his best to work out the marriage with her. He loved her. He wanted to forgive her. But even the week before they got to our workshop, she had met another man and had another one night stand. And she was looking at me saying, why? Why am I doing this? And how can I stop? There are many different reasons. I told you her story just to give you one. Some people, unfortunately, learn young in life to associate sex with being accepted, with sex with being part of normal life. And often these people grow up, not always, not every person who has been abused grows up to be promiscuous. Please understand that. 
but some do in the sense that that's happened to me. And I at least felt some degree of acceptance and safety because my brother took care of me and he protected me at school. And all that took place all the way up through the time that she was 12 years old and he was 15. And for whatever reason, he stopped doing it then. I asked her if she ever tried to talk it out with him, and she said he didn't want to. Try to talk it out with your mom? She didn't want to either. But this young lady had learned somehow early in life that there's a lot of pain, and pain can come from the people that love you. But somehow, somehow it becomes acceptable if sex is involved, because then at least they won't leave you, even if they're hurting you. Now, there are many other reasons as well. Certainly you understand that. I could give you a lot more examples of situations such as hers. For example, a minister I worked with many years ago who had had 13 extramarital affairs. And when I asked him about his situation, it started when he was a, just a small boy, about five years old, when his father would give him to the father's lover, another man. And that man would do sexual things to this boy. And when he once said to his dad, please don't let him do that to me again, his father actually took his little arm and snapped it. And on the way to the hospital said, if you ever mention it again, I will kill you. This guy grew up with a great hatred toward his father and his father's lover. By the time he got big enough to do anything about it, they were both dead. So he couldn't do anything about it. I mean, he was a big guy. He would have whipped them, I'm sure. He was so full of anger and hatred and bitterness. But even as a minister where he had certain values and beliefs that part of him really held true, at least 13 extramarital affairs before he finally just left ministry, left family, left everybody. Now, there are other reasons as well, you understand. Some people talk about things such as sexual addiction. And if you think you may be a sex addict or that your spouse may be a sex addict, then I recommend that you go to sexhelp.com. That's S-E-X-H-E-L-P.com. There are actually tests on there where you can test whether you think you're a sex addict or you can test whether you think your spouse is a sex addict. They will also refer you to sexual counselors if you think that's the problem. There are also our sites like xxxchurch.com. We just talk about it as Triple X Church, but on the internet it's xxxchurch.com. And they even have free resources to help people if you believe that you've had multiple affairs because you have some kind of sexual addiction. We can talk about it other ways, like, you know, people seeking to feel loved. And in the marriage relationship that they have, they do things trying to get their spouses to demonstrate love to them. But the things that they do finally become tiresome. We call it the push-pull process. What that means is I'm so afraid that you're not going to be there for me, that you're not going to give me the love that I want, that I'll push you away. But I don't really want you to go. What I really want you to do is to break through that. And as you break through that, you demonstrate to me that you love me. As I'm pushing you away, you break through that, and I know you really love me. The problem is they continue to doubt, and they do it again and again and again until finally the spouse begins to ignore those needs because it's like, how many times do I have to do this? And so we have all of these things going on and many more. I mean, I can give you a much longer list of all this, but what I'd like to do is to show you passage of Scripture What's really underneath it? Now, don't panic. Don't leave me right now. If you're thinking, well, uh-oh, you're about to get Bible and I'm not a Christian. That's fine. That's fine. Whether you are part of my religion or not, which is Christianity, if you're Jewish, if you're Muslim, if you're atheist, if you're agnostic, this passage is still going to pre uh, present a principle that will help me explain what generally goes underneath what's happening with people who continue to do anything such as an extramarital affair, but it could also be applicable to alcoholism or anything else that you can think of. So don't hear this as me preaching at you. That's not it. It's just that this passage of scripture gives me the outline and the structure to explain something about the social sciences and psychology that can maybe help us understand what's going on underneath some of these things. If you have a Bible and you want to look it up for yourself, that's fine. It's Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Again, if you're not religious, you're still going to find this, I think, extremely helpful from the social science standpoint as I use this verse to help you see some things. Now, for those who are Christians, I'll set the stage just a little bit. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. And he's talking about various things they've been doing. And some of the people there 
were living lifestyles that were not consistent with the principles of Christianity. Now, again, these other people, don't panic. Stay with me. In verse 17, he says this. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, Gentiles are people who are not Jews, but in this particular context, he's using Gentiles almost metaphorically to refer to anybody who is not living a lifestyle that is right, that's good. And he says, okay, they have futility of their thinking. What does that mean? It, well, you know what futile is. It's something that you may try, but it doesn't work. If you're an old Star Trek Next Generation fan like I am from back in the 80s, like, you know, when it started back then, you remember that when the, the Borg would come toward the Enterprise, they would say resistance is futile. Futility means you can try, but it's not going to work. It's just not going to be effective. So you might as well just give up now. And it refers to these kind of people who are having this difficulty we're about to read about as people whose thinking is futile. In other words, what they think is not working for them. They're trying things, but they're not finding what they're looking for. They're not accomplishing what they want. Now, he goes on and he says, they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now, again, you don't have to be a Christian for this to apply. Listen for the social science. If you follow that process back through, he says this, this futile thinking, and this time he refers to it as an ignorance because it's not working for you. This futile thinking, this ignorance, what does it come from? Well, he says it comes from the hardening of a heart. Now, you say, oh, well, you're going to explain that to us psychologically and from the social sciences? Actually, I'm going to try, yes. And what happens when you wind up with that hardened heart is that your understanding becomes darkened. You say, what do you mean? You don't reason well. You don't think well. In the sense that what you're trying to do, again, winds up being futile. That what it is that you believe you're looking for you're not accomplishing whatsoever. And it's frustrating. So now look at the next verse, and I think I can tell this together for you. He says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. Now, don't think greed there is talking about money. Actually, if you look at other translations, I'm reading from what's called the New International Version, It'll be something there like greedy for more lust or greeting for more debauchery or a continual lust for more. It's phrased different ways. And so the greed there is not for money. It's about the sensuality. You say, what do you mean? Okay. When I see a phrase like this, having lost all sensitivity, I looked it up first in this book of Ephesians to see if that phrase, that particular phrase was used anywhere else in the book of Ephesians to help me understand it. Well, it wasn't used anyplace else. So then I look in the writings of Paul, which are several of the writings of the New Testament. And no, you don't find it in any of those. And you look throughout the entire New Testament, and it's not found there either. This is the only time this particular phrase is found just like this. And so then you start examining the literature of that day to find out what that meant. Having lost all sensitivity is another way of saying, well, here's how we'd say it in the Southeast where I live in my day and time. We'd say feeling no pain. Now, if I were to refer to a guy, if we were walking down the street and I pointed to some guy and said, see that guy over there? He's feeling no pain. You would instantly think, oh my goodness, he's drunk or he's high. That's what Joe is saying. Some of the translations here will actually say they have become callous. It all comes down to the same thing. It's saying they've gotten to the point where they have tried to overcome their pain not by dealing with it, but by covering it over. They have become calloused. The way they have done that is through sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. What are you saying? Okay, if you've listened to this program very much, you know that I am a recovering alcoholic, so I am an addict. And this passage speaks to me greatly, and I think it helps to understand what happens when people are having any kind of a problem repetitive problems, including infidelity. But let me talk just for a moment from the sense of an alcoholic and then come back to that because it's the same basic underlying principle. If you were to visit with somebody who is part of AA, who's gone long enough to understand some things about himself or herself, and you were to say to that person, why do you drink? They're going to say something like this. Well, I like the way it makes me 
feel. And because you, if you're not an alcoholic, don't really know what they mean by that, you think, well, you like being high. Well, yeah, because that's, that, that's the particular addiction we go for. Yeah, it does involve a high, but that's not really what we mean. What we mean is that when we're doing our addiction, we don't feel pain. As a matter of fact, one addict described it to me this way once, and I thought as soon as he said it, yep, that's me, I get it. When we're doing our addiction, whatever it is, we sort of feel like that we are now feeling like other people feel all the time. You, you say, what, what do you mean? It's some kind of pain that we are not facing. As a matter of fact, we may not even know where it came from because of the fact that we're not facing. And if somebody were to ask us questions, if we were sitting in front of a counselor or therapist, we might be telling that person, but I've had a great life. Nothing has ever gone wrong. I, I don't have any pain. Now, I'm not calling you a liar because certainly I don't know the mind and heart of every human being on the planet. <laughs> I certainly don't. I have enough trouble trying to understand my own heart and mind. But most of us who do this, if not all, that, that try to cover over with sensuality the pain is because we've hardened our hearts against that pain. We have become calloused. We haven't dealt with it. We haven't fixed it. But when we do our sensuality for that period of time, we don't hurt. And so when I would drink, I didn't hurt. Yeah, for me, it did include a high. Alcohol does that to me. I enjoyed that, but I didn't hurt. You say, well, what kind of hurt did you have? I don't want to go through all my whole life explaining. Let's just say there's some things out of my childhood that were very painful for me. Very painful for me. And uh, self-esteem issues, all kinds of things. that no need to explain all of my hurt. But when I would drink, when I was doing that, I wasn't hurting. And so I actually read a master's thesis written by a woman who actually did work her way through master's degree stripping. She really did it and actually wrote her master's thesis on some of her clients, some of the guys who had come to the strip club. She was particularly interested in those men who were happily married, come to the strip club for an hour or two and they would go home to their wives. She wanted to know why, why do you come here? And the prevailing answer was basically when, when she was able to get deep enough into talking with them, I escape from the real world for a while. I come there. You act like you want me. I pay you money. I have a drink or two. And in that hour or two hours that I'm there, the way I would phrase it is I'm feeling no pain. Why? Because I'm covering over, over with sensuality Sensuality is something that affects some of our senses. It can be such things as taste and touch and feel and hearing and sight, without a doubt, that can be involved. But also the sensuality inside of me, the, the senses I need to touch someone. For example, back in my drinking days when I was running wild, it's been a long time now, but I remember it vividly. I sat in a bar one night, and at the next table, two women were talking. I was sitting there listening to them. I could still hear back in those days. Today I have severe hearing problems, but I could hear back in those days. And one said to the other, let's go to this other club. And she named where it was. And she said, the first man who tells me he loves me can have me. And at that point in my life, when I was living in debauchery, I mean, I was living a very, very bad lifestyle. I instantly, instantly knew exactly what she was talking about. You know, if you just pretend you love me, Pretend you care. Touch me. Hold me. And yes, that can wind up being sex. As a matter of fact, often does. At least for that period of time, I feel a connection with another human being. And so I'll do that. I'll do that with him. And if you're thinking, wow, at that point in your life, Joe, when you heard her say that, did you pick her up? No, I didn't. I had done a lot of bad things and did a lot more bad things after that, but I didn't that night because I sat there thinking, Oh my goodness, that's me. I feel the same way. I want to know or feel at least that someone loves me. And so even the ones who are having the extramarital affairs that are doing it primarily just for the sex are using that kind of sensuality to cover typically some kind of pain, even if they don't know what that pain is. 
and even the ones that have extramarital affairs that involve this strong emotional connection, a thing we often on this program refer to as being limerence. These are people who want to cover some kind of pain, and you say, well, they have a husband, a wife, somebody who genuinely loves them and genuinely cares for them. I understand that. But somehow, some way, they get to the point of feeling that that's not doing it for them anymore. Why? Well, if you understand that passage, what it said is because they've hardened their heart. They've not let themselves deal with the real pain. And they not only indulge in this impurity, this infidelity, those kind of things, but they're full of greed for more. Greed, what that means is a strong craving. I, I've got to have something else. This is no longer enough. And so it might even be a husband who's been coming home every day for the last 15 years, loving his wife. He loves his children. But because of the fact that he's never dealt with that pain inside of him, at some point, at some point, it begins to hurt so badly that he has to keep it wrapped up in that callus. Even when he doesn't understand what the hurt is, he may even not even feel it as a pain. He may feel it as a desire for something, even if he can't describe what that something is. And how does he find it? Well, he could find it in a bottle. He could find it snorting it up his nose. Some find it by being on stage and performing. Some find it by spending all of their time making money so that they don't have to think about anything other than that. And some find it when another person starts paying attention to them. And when the other person starts paying attention to them, yes, you know, we've had a good marriage until now, but I need something more. I want something more. Even if they don't express those words to themselves, even if they don't admit to themselves that's exactly what they're feeling, they know it's there. Because when this other person starts talking with them or flirting with them, they respond not just out of ego, but because of the fact that there's a part of them that really wants that kind of attention. And it's kind of amazing, isn't it, that when you talk to people about this, they'll often say, the woman that my husband left me for is not even in good physical shape. Or the woman that my husband left me for is mean and shrewish. Or the man my wife left me for is the guy that lives a lifestyle that nobody would really want to be with him. He's with woman after woman after woman. He's an abuser. He's a user. I don't know what my wife sees in him. It's not the perfect person they're looking for. As a matter of fact, quite often they're not looking for anybody in particular at all. All they know is there's something missing in them. And by the way, when they go into a deep, limerent relationship with that person, where that it feels good, I feel like the other person loves me, cares about me, even, even to the point of doing all the things we've talked about before where I don't see his or her flaws, it's because of what I'm getting. And if I start rewriting history toward my spouse to allow me to get away with this in my own heart and mind, even if I start neglecting my children, it's all because of that pain that's still inside of me. And here is the news flash. Eventually, that new relationship won't heal that hurt either. And at some point, you become vulnerable again. And that's why there are people who sometimes five years later wind up having another affair. Or some that go from immediately one to the other to the other. Now, hear me well. If your spouse has had an affair, does that mean then that they will be vulnerable for the rest of their lives? Listen very carefully to this because I don't want to discourage anybody. I'm really trying to help. The answer is yes and no. You say, what do you mean? Yes, you have to understand that that vulnerability is there, that it exists. But once you become aware of it, if indeed both spouses now understand it, you know, I understand it, my wife understands it, then definitely we can develop the kind of relationship where we can do the things that need to be done where then I don't do it again next week, next month, next year, next decade, that I really can be faithful to you for the rest of my life. But it's going to require dealing with the pain that's underneath even if I think I don't have any. Now remember, I've said that before. I'll say it again. Sometimes people will say, but my childhood was wonderful and my early life was great. I, I don't know why you would think there's some kind of pain inside of me. And my response would be, it's because you're looking for something. If you weren't, 
you wouldn't continue to do this thing that hurts the people that you love. The woman that you once stood beside and promised to live with for life, or the man that you said, until death do us part. The children that you brought into this world that you you love, but somehow convince yourself that loving them doesn't mean having to be with them. Yet there's a part of you, even if you've gone through the resolution of cognitive dissonance, even if you're getting past the fact of feeling guilty, there's still a part of you that knows it's been really about me. It really is about me. And if this still exists as a need within you, don't you understand that the next affair won't fix it either? It can be a temporary fix, but it's not a good fix. Not a good fix for you or anybody in your world. It's not even a good fix for the other person because he or she may be in exactly the same boat. And so how many people who wind up having an extramarital affair actually wind up having that extramarital affair with somebody else who is still dealing with pain from his or her life? Well, I think you understand what I'm saying. I at least hope you do. I am absolutely telling you the truth. I've been there. I have done this. So what do you do? What do you do? If you have a conscience left, if you really care about what's right, there are some things to do. But part of that is going to require you having to do the work, as the counselors would say, to discover where that emptiness inside of you come from, comes from, what, what part of you you have covered over with that callous or that loss of sensitivity, that what part of you are you trying to cover with your sensual activities? Because they really are sensual in the sense that if I feel all these wonderful senses, whether it's you're touching my skin or you're touching my heart, if I feel all these wonderful senses, then I don't hurt. Now, if you can find a therapist or counselor to help you with that, without destroying your marriage in the process, you can do it. Or maybe, just maybe, you can do it with your own spouse. You say, how? By learning how to trust each other enough to open up and talk about everything. No, I'm not saying your spouse will be a great therapist, a counselor, but sometimes having somebody who loves you and will truly, honestly listen and ask questions, not to accuse you, but ask questions to try to understand you, sometimes just by a series of asking questions, not maybe in one session, but maybe over time, over time, those questions begin to get you to think deeply within yourself, and you begin to discover things about you that you didn't know before. One thing that we do in our workshop for marriages in crisis that we call 911 is a three-day intensive is present a whole lot of information, and we ask, actually ask a lot of questions that we hope will help people learn about themselves. And one of the greatest things I love hearing at the end of the workshop is when somebody says, I learned a lot about me. Good. Now you're beginning to understand. And as you learn more about you, you can learn why you do things and what it's really trying to accomplish that maybe now you have no clue about. Well, I asked for some people to call in, and I don't know who the callers are that I'm about to go to, but I did say that tonight I'm asking for people not to ask me questions, please. I want to talk to people who have had an affair or people who are in an affair. Even if there have been multiple affairs, that's even more. I'll ask you a few questions about your story and then ask you a few questions about you. Obviously, I don't know who's out there. I mean, I have people waiting on me right here. And as we do that, Let's see if we can all discover some things together. So we're going to start with uh, area code 714. Hello, 714. This is Joe Beam. Dr. Joe Beam? Yeah, this is Dr. Joe Beam. Can you give How me a first doing? name? Any first name. Sure. It's something I can call you. It's John. Okay, I'll just call you Don. So, Don, based on what we've been saying so far, have you been involved in an extramarital affair? Well, it depends. I would say I've, I've cheated on my wife multiple times with uh, prostitutes. I don't really consider that like an affair, but I do consider cheating on my wife. Okay. Do you know why you do that, Don? Um, part of me feels that um, you know it's just me trying to feel loved by other people in a short amount of uh, period of time. 
I have no intention of uh, ever leaving my wife. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I find myself constantly looking, um, maybe out of fear that my wife will, will leave me one day. I've had several bad uh, relationships. Um, mm-hmm. My parents also split multiple times when I was a kid. So. Oh, really? How many times? Uh, we got back together three times. Uh, my dad was abusive. Um, he almost killed my mom once by beating her to death. And then they oh, got wow. back together. And, and then the last time I saw him, uh, luckily my parents split, uh, uh, you know, without any violence the last time. But uh, the time before that, I did have to call the police on him when I was 13 years old. And uh, they came and arrested him. How did you feel about that at the time, my friend, as a 13-year-old, that you were the one who called and the police are hauling him away? How did you feel? Well, I was devastated. I mean, no one liked to see, you know, uh, their father dragged away in handcuffs. Um, my dad didn't talk to me for a few years. I had to testify in court against him, and, and it was very hard. I mean, it destroyed my world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that's, that's terrible, Don. I'm so sorry that happened to you, my friend. How old were you when you had your first sexual experience? It's 17. 17. And was that somebody you genuinely cared about or somebody that was just primarily teenagers being teenagers? Um, probably teenagers being teenagers. So it was mostly just, and, and by the way, I'm not trying to put down teenagers or say that all teenagers are sexually active, but it was basically the experimentation and sexuality. Uh, is that correct? That's correct. And how did you feel about that? Um, you know, it was, it was too young to really enjoy it. I know the girl that I slept with, she became emotionally attached to me, and, and uh, she moved away after the summer. And uh, the funny thing is I really didn't have any feelings for her. I mean, I enjoyed the time with her, but when she left, I wasn't heartbroken or anything. Mm-hmm. Was there any girl that you did have feelings for back then? Oh, oh yeah. Um, my next girlfriend after that, I, I fell head over her heels for her. And uh, unfortunately, she she was one of those females that had her own issues and, uh, you know, had multiple boyfriends and kind of, I would say, played me or or used me. Um, One of those girls you would have done anything for, you know, back then. I was probably, I was 18 at the time. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing so far. uh, Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You go ahead. Well, what I'm hearing so far. (laughs) You go first, my friend. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Go ahead. What I'm hearing so far is that you were basically abandoned by your father, even though you had to be part of that abandoning. And then the the first girl that you really cared about wound up using you and abusing you like your father had sort of used and abused your mom, right? Yeah. Yeah. So kind of a, kind of a similar pattern, not exactly the same thing, obviously. So what happened next, my friend? Um, after that, I met my first wife, and uh, she was really good, and she was a caring person, and she loved me to death. Um, and unfortunately, you know, she got pregnant when she was 17. I was uh, 19 at the time. Obviously, mm-hmm. we both were, you know, it wasn't a shotgun wedding, but I would say it was, uh, you know, frowned upon. If we didn't get married, we got married. And mm-hmm. I would say, unfortunately, uh, right after that, I started uh, cheating on her, Um and nothing real serious, but uh, she was with girls at work. Um, and then later on, that, that broke down the marriage. And unfortunately, she ended up having an affair with someone much older than me. And uh, she left me and, and stayed married to that gentleman 16 years still. So, And then uh, after that, I'm currently married to my uh, next wife. She <clears throat> currently left me back in January. Uh, same situation. This is the one where we got married. And uh, we have two children together, and uh, during the course of our marriage, I've you know, gone out and seeked uh, prostitutes, um, mm-hmm. you know, one-night stands per se. And, you know, I love my wife immensely, and uh, unfortunately, it caused her to feel unloved and find love through the company of a, another gentleman, and she moved out in January. Um, and I'm here today. Okay, I hear you, Don. Do you hear the repetitiveness of, of this scar tissue in you, my friend? Oh, I, I, I completely, I completely hear it. I mean, I've talked to, I've been going to therapy constantly weekly for seven months. And mm-hmm. uh, my therapist even feels that, uh, you know, when I get in a relationship, I, I created a self-destructive pattern. Um, why? I don't know. We really haven't explored that yet on why I do that. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that, uh, it's one of the things I really hate. Uh, you know, I love my family to, to death. One thing I wanted most growing up was a family of my own. 
Mm -hmm. I keep finding myself doing things that are destructive, you know, looking for Mm -hmm. other people in that relate why I already have what I want. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of frustrating. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't have the ability to tell you all about you either. I'm I'm just going to tell you what I heard in the short term here that in the family of origin, your dad and your mom, it was highly unstable. And you were the one that finally ended it because of the fact that your mom was not safe. Right. Correct. That's what you said. Okay. And then, and then basically you just had sex for a girl with a girl for a while. But if I heard you correctly, that girl really was enamored of you but you didn't feel that toward her. So did you ever have any feelings that maybe you were using her? Did you ever feel that way? No, not at all. Okay. Do you think she felt that way? I would say based on when, when she left, she wrote me several, several letters afterwards. I, I never responded to that at uh-huh. all. Um, I, I feel that, you know, it was more of a, you know, teenager or 17, 17 year old hooking up and, exploring each other's sexuality. Obviously, we were both virgins at the time. Obviously, mm-hmm. she became emotionally hooked, and I didn't, um, mm-hmm. which is weird because usually I don't, I, don't, I don't like to say I like one-night stands for saying I don't like one-night stands if I sleep with somebody because I want an emotional connection with them, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of ironic because, you know, for me to seek prostitutes, obviously prostitutes are, are literally one-night stands, but I don't get an emotional connection to them. Mm-hmm. So your first sexual experience was without emotional connection. And it's interesting that, again, you were the one who did the initial things that broke up both your marriages, right? Like if I heard you correctly with the first marriage, and again, I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm just trying to understand, okay, that, that in the first one, you did something with some woman and then your wife, your first wife then gets involved with a guy a lot older than you. And then you did something that led your second wife to lead you. So it's like, one repetitive pattern, and you just said it, is that you're the one that does the destructive things to end a relationship, right? That's what you said. Correct. Correct. But do you think that ties back at all to what happened with your dad? I I don't know. It's tough for me to look at because I look at the relationship with my mom and dad, and, and, you know, I'm not abusive. You know, he would physically abuse her, and I don't Mm -hmm. do that. And I don't know how, how physical abuse would translate into me seeking company of other women when I have a relationship or, or a marriage with another person. Well, I, you know, I agree. I understand what you're saying. What I was saying earlier in the program, and, and you may believe it doesn't apply to you at all, and that's fine. I'm not trying to convince you, is that the pain that we have doesn't have to necessarily be a sexual pain to lead to a sexual act. That the pain we have that, that hurts inside of us that we really don't have a way or at least have not yet found the right way to deal with is the pain that leads us to start trying to cover it with sensuality. And in your case, sensuality apparently has been, well, I found out early that I can and sublimate this off into a sexual kind of situation because if you don't feel anything for those prostitutes, and I'm glad you don't, you know that it's not accomplishing anything good, yet you keep going back. So it's doing something for you, right? Otherwise you wouldn't be going back. Correct. Correct. Okay. And my premise is that when that happens with anybody, and I'm not really trying to talk about just you, Don, is that when it happens with anybody, that that's a futile effort to do with some pain deep within us and that it doesn't work. But you've already agreed that it doesn't work, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. So is your therapist helping you with this, my friend? She is. I mean, she's she's trying the best she can. It, it, it's hard for her to really, you know, I mean, luckily I've been going to her for several months, but she feels that, in her opinion, she feels the reason I do those self-destructive things that, you know, uh, to my marriages is because I feel that since everyone in my life that's loved me in some way or another has hurt me in some way, that mm-hmm. it's my subconscious telling me that, you know, keep looking for the next person to love you because the person that's currently with you right now won't be around for long. Well, I think she's absolutely right. But at the same time, as you've already said, you're the one who does the things to drive them away. Do you think that's because you really down deep think they're going to leave you anyway and it doesn't hurt quietly, quite as badly as if you're the one who caused it to happen? 
Subconsciously, yes. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to say subconsciously because subconsciously right. is supposed to be you're not aware of it per se. But if right. I had to say if I had to say something, I would say yes. I'm afraid that <clears throat> the person that's with me won't be around for long, and subconsciously right. I, I destroy the relationship. Right. My, maybe trying to mitigate the pain if I do the destruction versus the other person. I think you're very insightful about yourself, young man, and I'm glad you've got a therapist who understands this. How long have you been seeing her? Uh, Seven months. Okay. Are you going to stick with her? Oh, yeah, I go weekly. Excellent. Good for you. Don, thank you for your courage. Thank you for coming on here and and, and kind of illustrating some of these things. I genuinely appreciate it. And for you, my friend, I truly hope that you find the peace inside of you that you're looking for. Well, I thank you very much, and I thank you for the Facebook post, and I thank you for all the listeners. Uh, I know we support each other weekly and daily, and sometimes there, mm-hmm. there are tough days, and we stand with each other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sometimes there are tough days, my friend. Thank you, Don. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. All right, you have a good evening. That was an extremely courageous man. But did you see how that, that illustrates and demonstrates exactly what I've been talking about all along? Now, Don hasn't yet gotten to the point, based on what he said, I'm just going about what he said, but based on what Don said, he's not yet gotten to the point where he's really grasped what that pain is to the point where he can just deal with it. I would imagine that his therapist, if she hasn't already, is going to have him do a lot of work about his dad. Now, I'm not trying to say that we can blame everything we do wrong on somebody else. But I do think it's honest to say that sometimes the things that people have done to us have precipitated our actions that follow. They didn't make us do it. We still have our choice. Our choices often come from that situation of, you know, I need something that I don't have and I'm going after it. Now, let's go back to you talking about folks here who then have had the multiple affairs. Maybe it's your spouse. And you're saying, okay, Joe, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying about the pain, but I don't know how to help my husband deal with that pain. I don't know how, how to help my wife deal with that pain. And while it might absolutely take a therapist, and I'm being a little redundant now, forgive me for that, it is extremely important, in my opinion, that you become a listener that is so safe that your spouse can get to the point of just completely opening up. And it's scary for a person to do that for a lot of reasons. One is for fear that you won't accept them, particularly if you find out some of the things that they have done or the things that they have wanted to do. It was before Alice and I divorced. My wife and I divorced after being married 15 years. We were divorced for three. We've been married to each other this time, 29 years. So same woman with a three-year gap in the middle. I started drinking about the time I left her, and a little before that, and I remember once, I was pretty drunk, but I remember it pretty vividly, that I kept sobbing over and over trying to explain to her, I kept saying these words, I am somebody, I am somebody. Now, if you had known me at the time, you would have thought, what a weird thing to say, because I was, back in those days, a minister, not just a minister of a growing church that was growing pretty rapidly, but also being invited all over the country to speak here and speak there and speak everywhere and opportunities far beyond what should have been available to me at my age and level of experience. And probably a lot of people would have thought, wow, he's somebody. But in my own heart, in my own mind, I wasn't. Now, but some kind of a fake or a fraud and had grown up thinking several negative things about myself from the people who were around me who continually use abusive humor toward me, telling me how ugly I was so that I actually was scared to look at myself in the mirror and was quite convinced that I was one of the ugliest men on the planet and others who continually told me how stupid I was <laughs> later, later in life, a little later than that, at least I had my IQ checked. It was 153 Average IQ is 100, so that's fairly bright. (laughs) I don't know that it's that high anymore, but it was at some point in my life. But people were telling me that I was stupid. 
you were stupid or that you're nothing but a show out because what I had done to try to offset those two things when I was young was do things that got a lot of attention. I learned how to be funny. I learned how to make speeches. I learned how to do things. If you've ever heard the story of Rodney Dangerfield, you'll know that his wife said after his death that the only time he ever felt loved was when people were laughing at him. That was his addiction, if you will. And if you know anything about his childhood, particularly the way his mother and sister treated him, which was just, according to what I've read, atrocious, then he wanted to be loved, and that's the way he found it. I, that's a whole lot better way, being on the stage and having people laugh at you than, than, of course, like I did, going through alcohol and finally women, or like Don, who just courageously told us about his struggle with prostitutes. And so while other people would have looked at me from the outside and said, he's got it made. I mean, look at this. He's become famous at a young age and et cetera and et cetera. Inside myself, I was that ugly, stupid kid. And that night when drunk, sobbing to my wife, I am somebody. I am somebody. Now, please don't hear this negative about Alice. She's one of the best people on the planet. But at that point in her life, she didn't know how to respond to that. She didn't know how to listen to it. Actually, she was pretty doggone mad because I was drunk. And therefore, there was no gentle, <laughs> kind listening and understanding. And don't hear that as a negative toward Alice. She, she did the best she knew how to do at the time. But I desperately wanted somebody who could assure me that I was somebody. And when I didn't, and, and Alice did her dead level best, she just didn't understand how to listen and, and how to hear the great import of what I was saying. If I had said it when I was sober, she may likely, back in those days, because we were younger, said something to the effect, well, look at all these things you're doing. Sure, you're somebody, which would have not been the right answer. Because I wasn't wanting somebody to explain what I was doing. I knew what I was doing. I wanted somebody to listen to me and to hear the pain I felt within. And that would then start gently asking questions. Maybe not just in one session, but over time. Like, when did you start feeling that way? And what kind of emotions do you experience when you feel that way? And how does it affect the way that you act? And how does it affect the things that you do? And all those kinds of things. So that over time, I would have come back finally. And by the way, I'm not going to tell you now what it was, but I now know. It took me a few years to figure it out, but I now know where that core pain came from. I can actually trace it back and tell you some events that were involved in it now. But I don't know if I would have been because I didn't really think about it, what it was. Now, we were young and didn't know you're older and you have people like us who are helping you. And so may I encourage you this way? Listen, if the other person gives you any opportunity, any chance at all, listen. Now, obviously, if your spouse has had an affair or if your spouse has had multiple affairs, if you wish, you can divorce that person. That's your opportunity. That's your choice. You can do it. If you wish to try to rescue this person and to salvage the marriage, understand that this is a manifestation of some kind of pain in a way that we talked about out of that passage, because this really is covering a calloused heart that has hurt inside of it. And rather than dealing with that hurt, this person is trying to cover it with sensuality. And no matter how wonderful you are, it finally reached the point where that was not enough. And that's why that passage refers to the greediness of more sensuality. I've got to have something else to cover it. And so that might become the new person or the new thing or the escalation in the drinking or the escalation and whatever it is the person is doing, I've got to travel, I've got to be on stage, I've got to make money, whatever it might be. But if you can, if you decide you want to rescue this person, listen. And when, as you ask questions, one of the things that I suggest that you do is that you ask all about childhood. Now, the other person will say, I've already told you everything about my childhood. Nobody's ever done it, but everybody thinks they have. But just say, you know, Think about a time in your childhood when you felt alone. As a matter of fact, you may even prime the pump by telling about a time in your childhood when you felt alone. Describe it. Let, it, let yourself see it in your mind so that you can basically relive it as you tell it, which helps you look at it again from a new perspective, believe it or not, because you'll be telling it out loud and trying to give enough details for the other person to understand. But you also will, will begin to experience some of the same emotions that go with that when you do so that, that your spouse is seeing your emotions and hearing your heart and then hopefully encouraging him or her to do the same. And as they do, you listen and you particularly listen for repetitive patterns like with Tom. 
where the repetitive pattern has been over and over again, because from childhood, I've come to believe that the people I love and depend on are going to hurt me, are going to leave me. And so therefore, the first time I was the one who made that end, and now the repetitive pattern is I continue to be the one to make that end, but not in the same way. The first time I called the police, I did the right thing. I saved my mother's life. But I basically repeated the same pattern, but not doing the right thing because there was no policeman to call. The person, my, my wife wasn't doing anything bad. But so I did it another way. I did it by being the person who was bad. And if you start finding those repetitive patterns, then you will learn a lot about you. You'll learn a lot about your spouse. And if you can do that together, you can work it out. So that I was working with a couple oh, a couple of years ago. I said, tell me one story from your childhood. He said, I can't remember anything from my childhood. I said, did you go to church? He said, yeah, we went to church. I said, well, just tell me about one time when you went to church. He said, can't think of it. Did you go to school? Yeah, okay. Tell me one thing that happened in school, just one. He couldn't remember a thing. This man was having one affair after another. But he couldn't remember any story from his childhood. Do you understand what that in all likelihood says? He really wasn't dealing with the pain within him. As a matter of fact, the fact that he couldn't tell me one single story about anything from his childhood, couldn't even tell me the color of his bike, nothing, probably indicates he shut his entire childhood out. And look what it led to now. And the last thing I said to him, the last time I saw him, until you can get somebody to help you unlock your heart, to get past that callous, you're going to continue to try to cover it with sensuality. And in your case, that sensuality is infidelity. And if you can get the right help, your wife's willing, she'll listen. If you don't want to talk to a therapist, if you need a therapist, there are many in your area. But if you can do this, you can get well from this. Now, if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, Joe, based on all you've said, then Alice should know there is a possibility you could cheat on her again, start drinking again. Yes, she knows there's a possibility that could happen. She also knows it won't. Why? <laughs> because we can talk so openly and honestly about it. We can deal with my pains, including those childhood ones that sometimes crop up all over again. And that's how she knows. Because now we have a relationship where I am not empty. I'm not thinking there's something missing I've got to have. I have it. I have it with a woman who listens, who loves, who cares. Now, because I'm a Christian, I also have it with a God who listens and who loves and who cares and who has forgiven me. Think these things through. I hope it helps. May God be with you and have a good evening.